Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Okay, I was wrong. The last time I had Ed Greenspawn... On the show, we were talking about this research project that I participated in, this this idea that there might be a government news bailout, that the liberal government might step into the news business and bail out these failing newspapers. I had him on the show. He is the former editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail. Today, he's running this think tank, the Public Policy Forum, and he was the guy contracted by the government to research the news business and what could be done to save it. And I was very rude. You know, the report hadn't even come out yet. And I I said, you know what? I know what this is going to be. Your report is going to come out and it's just going to be that same old Canadian policy thing where everything gets watered down and you choose the middle path and you take a little bit of everybody's idea. So no one's really happy, but everybody's a little bit represented. And then the government's going to take that and they'll water it down further. And, you know, we'll just get another huge government boondoggle out of this. I was wrong. The report came out and it is not a watered down Middle of the road, milk toast, boring Canadian document. They went extreme, man. It is called Shattered Mirror. And like the first page of the report is like a shattered mirror. And it describes the Canadian news business as just a flaming, I don't have to even, I'll just quote here. Journalistic carnage proclaims this report. It's a bloodbath. 
That's what the report says. It's a bloodbath. Established news organizations have been left gasping. The emergence of digital news companies, these aggregators like the Huffington Post, they are described as vampiric. I am not joking. This is a think tank policy report that warns us about bloodbaths and vampires. It does recommend a news bailout, but not a middle-of-the-road milquetoast one, a huge one, taxing of mostly Facebook and Google to create a three to $400 million fund that will go to news companies that say that they're doing innovative things. Now, as somebody who analyzes the Canadian news business and reports on it for a living, and also as somebody who owns a small media business, this report scares the hell out of me. And not because I'm scared of vampires or of bloodbaths, but because the idea of this fund feels like an existential threat to the next generation of journalism in Canada. So I am scared silly about this shattered mirror report and the possibility that it might actually be adopted by the government. And Ed Greenspawn will be with me to talk about it in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Carrie Buchanan, Eric, William Jensen, Aaron Schneider, Christopher McLeod, Skeets Venderson, Pedram Roshdanavid, and Jesse Jacobs. Jesse, why did you decide to be awesome? Because there are so many stories that would just fly under my radar if it weren't for this podcast. Your important work holding the Canadian media accountable, and that's easily worth a few dollars every month. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by camptech.ca. CampTech provides workshops for grown-ups who want to learn how to do computers better. They provide these workshops in Toronto, Vancouver, and Ottawa. And these are like half-day to full-day digital skill workshops where you can very quickly learn very practical stuff about how to use things like Google Analytics or how to do online retail or use Photoshop or how to do Facebook advertising. 
I mean, why just live your life freaked out by Facebook's power to scrape your data, all of your personal data, and use it to manipulate you into buying things when you could be using Facebook's data to scrape data and manipulate other people. You know, when you're wearing your general citizen hat, uh, it's kind of creepy what Facebook knows about you when you're on their platform. But then when you put on your marketing hat, it has some really powerful tools. You can really target people based on their interests, based on their demographics, based on their geographic area. And like you said, you really don't have to spend a lot of money to get some really effective advertising on that platform. That is CampTech founder Avery Swartz. Check out her classes at camptech.ca. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the accounting solution for the little guy, the little company, the entrepreneur, the freelancer. We use it. I used it when I was a freelancer. It gets you paid quicker. It makes you look better to your clients. It frees up time so you can do the thing that you actually want to be doing, the thing that you're getting paid to be doing. It is essentially the accounting department for your small business or for your freelance practice. You could not imagine an easier piece of software to use. And while it is stupidly simple to use, it is incredibly powerful under the hood when it comes time to track your expenses or to do your taxes, anything like that. It is very powerful when you dig deep into it. Check this out for free because you can use it for free. You don't need a credit card. 30 days when you go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. And when you do become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you. You will be doing this show a favor. That is freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. First of all, I got to apologize to you. I think I was very rude to you last time. I very snarkily predicted that when this report comes out, it will be this milk toasty. You'll take everyone's opinion and advice and it'll all get watered down into this dry policy document. That is not the report that you released. You went extreme. There's this shattered mirror on the cover. It's frightening. You describe news organizations left gasping. It's a bloodbath of journalistic carnage. There's a reference to vampires in this report. It's an exciting report. Ed. Vampires are very important for the marketplace. You know that. (laughs) Ed, your report scared me. Is this the time for Canadians to be huddling in fallout shelters with bayonets and pitchforks to prepare for the coming post-truth zombie vampire apocalypse? Well, you know, it is um, uh, a scary time. I don't think uh, we have to um, go into shelters. I think, you know, some Canadians are going on to uh, protest the scary times and uh, being activists. But I think it's a, a period of time where we really want to concentrate on the quality of information that we get, the depth of reporting the uh, capacity to report and the capacity to have um, factual information out there circulating. And one of the things that I've thought about a lot in the um, surge of fake news is that fake news like costs no money to make. You know, you sort of think up a really, you know, nasty fake story and, uh, and you put it out there and it takes like 10 or 15 minutes. Real news can take months and months or in the case of what we've seen in the Globe on um, unreported sexual assault, years of, uh, of, of investment. So you're, there's you're referring a, to the a kind of a, 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 asymmetry there. Yeah. I want to talk about this fake news thing because it comes up a lot in the report. I, I think I first need to get something un, uh, inconvenient out of the way, which is the fact that I agreed with most of the recommendations in this report, because that doesn't really do us any good here for a conversation. It's not so useful for me. To it's just... not only inconvenient, it's uh, it's actually surprising, but uh, there we go. It's you know. Are we going to have no tension here, Jesse? Oh no, we're gonna, you, you, you'll find some, right? We're going to have plenty. So I just, I just, this is just housekeeping. Removing barriers to philanthropic journalism, excellent. That's long overdue. Putting more money into Indigenous news, not just that, but making sure that APTN 
is and they've earned the position and they've shown that they they can th- this should be something that indigenous news takes care of putting them in charge of that money that's a fantastic recommendation here's one that's near and dear to my heart and helps me get away from a bit of a i mean it's a confluence of interest but it, it is a, you know technically it's a conflict of interest i have been very vocal on what should happen in news in canada as a media critic but i also run a news company and the fact that cbc is selling podcast ads is a for- source of competition for me uh, that i've been critical of because they can undercut a company like ours very easily on ad sales, well, you suggest, uh, based on many people's input, including Canada Lands, that CBC should be prohibited from selling news online. Fantastic. I'm all, all for that. You go even further, CBC News should be made available through open source licenses, Creative Commons license. That is a fantastic recommendation and is totally modern in terms of collaborative journalism, us building on each other's work. CBC is public funded. Journal- they, of course, they should put that out and then we can build and add to their reporting. It's filled with good stuff. There's other goodies in there that I that I totally approve of. Yet you want you want to stop and talk about those for a minute? Or you what's just want to, to say? Or you just want to move on to the have the shoe drop? Uh, we, we, you could take a victory lap. What are we to say about all those wonderful things? Well, you know, I think some of them are have things to say about them. I, I think you know, just my own sense of discovery in this process. Okay, because you know, I didn't start out where we ended up, if you will. And uh, and Indigenous news, uh, the need for more coverage of, of the democracies with, uh, within the nations in, uh, in Canada, the Indigenous nations in Canada, was something that just began revealing itself to me. Other people, more acute, I'm sure, would have seen it a long time ago. But uh, in our roundtables, I would see some small struggling, uh, you know, one person, two person, three person news operations trying to cover a, uh, a corruption scandal involving a, uh, a chief financial officer of, of a band in one case, you know, issues of this sort. And I realized, my God, uh, this is coverage of our democracy, of one of our orders of government as well, that is so underfinanced and and so uh, uh, underpeopled, if you will. So, you know, that was a discovery process for me. Uh, the online uh, CBC ads that you mentioned, uh, I know that I know you have an interest in it, uh, and and uh, you know, financial interest, and as you're, you're quite transparent about. You know, I, I came at it from another end. In the end, you know, we've heard a lot about for a long time that uh, that publishers, you know, this money could go to publishers instead. Well, that's not the way the market works. Mm-hmm. The money will go where the money goes, and very little of it will probably end up with uh, traditional news publishers. But it distorts CBC at a time where, and we're sitting here starting with fake news, and uh, at a time where we got fake news coursing through the system in growing uh, quantities, we need a very serious CBC, a CBC that's not chasing clickbait. And, and to remove that incentive to go in the wrong direction is really the important part here, not the distribution of the $25 million. Especially when we see the CBC actively doing clickbait, actively doing advertorial stuff for uh, new toothbrushes and lingerie lists. And there's all sorts of stuff that is indecipherable. You couldn't, you couldn't distinguish a CBC post from a BuzzFeed post. I think anybody who cares about the CBC as a news organization would say this is something that we need. Yeah, to. And, and I think most people who care about the CBC will say that. I would not, you know, uh, make the same comparison you made because at the same time the CBC does uh, Terrence McKenna on immigration, which uh, I watched the second part of last night and watched the first part in Scranton, Pennsylvania about two weeks ago, which was, you know, excellent, excellent journalism. So, you know, there's a broad range of journalism. There's journalism at, 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 as good as it gets, and we need more of the as good as it gets. In fact, you recommend that we go back to the CBC's mandate and put a more emphasis that they're there to enlighten and, and inform and entertain, I think, is in their yeah, mandate. Yeah, inform, say, enlighten, and entertain are the three uh, bases, and I th- want to put more emphasis on inform. That's all good stuff, man. But 
it's a big however here because the part of this that has proven uh, most controversial it's not just the turn of this. It actually might make all those other initiatives a little insignificant because it, it, this has the most potential, if if they take your advice and do what you say, to really change the news business. And that is the establishment of this fund where you tax mostly Google and Facebook and create a, a one-time $100 million government uh, payout and then, and then an ongoing fund that would be in the realm of 300 to $400 million a year that my understanding of this, this is essentially a news bailout. Most of that money, I have to, just from the wording of how it's set up in the report, this would go to our established, you'll excuse the term, legacy news organizations. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's the right conclusion. I think, you know, there's a lot of people, and you're probably one of them from what I've seen so far, Jesse, who have principled opposition to this, and I can, you know, I can appreciate that. You know, this is um, a report is hoping to catalyze a, a stronger debate, and uh, and that's great. But I don't think that, first of all, it's not meant to go to legacy uh, media alone. It's uh, I was very conscious of what I heard, what I heard from you, what I heard from other people, that, uh, and particularly, you know, coming from the... Uh, new creative organizations that have arisen over the last few years, like Canada Land, that, uh, that you were afraid that this would be a money grab by the, uh, by the organized uh, traditional media and that that would, you know, kind of shut out and penalize uh, new entrants to, uh, to the media world. And, you know, we're very conscious to keep this open for everybody. In fact, I think in, in that recommendation, it speaks about with special emphasis on early stage uh, operations so that they, uh, you know, that would be a bit of an instruction, if you will, to the, uh, to the people who manage the, uh, the fund. And it's, you know, like a granting council, like an academic granting council. So I, d- I don't think it's meant to discriminate. I think it's meant to be, as it says, it has two priorities. Let's make sure that we have enough good journalism, enough serious journalism out there. And let's also make sure that we're moving up the uh, digital ladder to become more sophisticated in our storytelling and our ability to gather news, etc. So, you know, those are the two goals on principle, fundamental grounds. You might uh, disagree with it. I'm, uh, you know, fully accepting that it's a democracy. Um, I have my reasons for making the argument as I made it, but but I don't think it's uh, meant to distort the marketplace and particularly lock in the status quo against creative newcomers. Well, let me just clarify what my argument is. It's not that I'm afraid of being shut out. Uh, quite explicitly, it's uh, I don't want a dime if you're going to give the other guy a dollar. And uh, I, I think that there is a little something here for everybody, but uh, it is, of course, a distortion of the market if, in fact, hundreds of millions of dollars do end up in the, in the hands of these failing news organizations. That, that, of course, distorts. I mean, any kind of government influx of money into an industry is a distortion of the market. Who it goes to, I guess, is a, is a major concern. But, you know, that's what it is. It's market interference. Maybe it's the right market interference. But the, the argument that is made for this fund relies heavily on, you've already brought it up, fake news, the threat of fake news. I think it's in there 39 times. Simon Hubbard, who I rarely quote, said that uh, the explosion of fake news hover like a smiling Satan over this report. Um, I read Simon's column. I I remember the column. I thought it was actually a pretty good column. You know, I think there's two premises here that we're you know that we've got to um, deal with, and fake news is uh, is is one of them. The unreliability of 
aspects, growing aspects of uh, of the news ecosystem and how that might corrupt uh, informed citizenry is, you know, is clearly one of them. And the other is, you know, the weak, weak and ever-weakening finances of uh, not just the traditional media. I think that the new media is pretty weak in its uh, financial state uh, as well. Sure. And has had trouble scaling journalistically, mm-hmm. you know, probably financially, but, you know, having enough uh, journalistic power. So, you know, we have the tie in, uh, in British Columbia, pretty good news site, but, you know, they only have three full-time reporters after 14 years. I don't think that's enough scale to, you know, do well what we are talking about a few minutes ago. Let's say a Robin Doolittle type of uh, of story. So, uh, therefore, though, you know, with those two things, I think that the market is, I don't think, you know, we just have failing news organizations. I think we have a failing news ecosystem, a failing marketplace that isn't sufficiently financed as advertising goes off into particularly uh, social media and search where there's no investment in journalism. And, and you know, I, I want to be careful here. If I can just, like, do a parenthesis. It's very easy for me to uh, sound as if I'm some anti-internet guy, anti-the-new-world. I'm, you know, of an age. I come from, you know, uh, the traditional media and this. You know, I like to defend myself that I was, you know, the launch editor of Globemail.com. I've, you know always been, I think, you know, pro the democratization that internet brings, the access to uh, expression that, you know, comes from the internet. I talk in the report about, you know, would we have had a Black Lives Matter movement without, you know, an internet world? I suspect perhaps not. So to me, the question isn't platform, it's nothing like that. It's do we have journalism? Do we have journalistic capacity to, uh, to watch over the system? That's all great. But you warn us about this threat 39 times of fake news. And I just want to challenge- In, in 106 pages, I guess, okay, every five pages I went to it or something. Okay, good. Four, yeah, four okay, it, it comes up a lot. And, and, and not just fake news uh, in and of itself, but the fact that fake news may have influenced the US election. Uh, Donald Trump has mentioned 17 times in this report. So there's this there's this threat that is going to resonate with a lot of people. I mean, people were scared to hell. This, this idea that we're in a post-truth universe and that we uh, ended up by a slim margin with Donald Trump as the American president because America- fell prey to this internet-fueled monster of fake news that pushed him up there. And, and there is this right, like, could this happen in Canada? And, and here's how we stop it from happening in Canada. 39 times, the threat of fake news. How do we deal with it? What is the Canadian threat of fake news? And, and I'm going to ask you, I can't think of a Canadian fake news story. Can, can you... Can you Think of one? Um, yeah, I think Nick Cavallis uh, uh, spoke a few weeks ago about having created a uh, a fake news story uh, uh, in his uh, while he was still running Kelly Leach's uh, campaign. So uh, you know, there's one that you can go reference. And if you're going to ask me to remember, no, that was a lie. You're going to go re- that was Well, what lie. is a fake story? It's a lie. Well, that's a great. That's a great it, question. It, it, it's a lie. You know. I think it's two things, okay? So if you ask me what uh, what fake news is, I don't think it's uh, it's a mistake in a story. I don't think it's a story that you don't agree with. That's all part of the, you know, give and go of, of a democratic discourse. I think it's a story with malevolent intent for political reasons and political gain to distort what uh, citizens may know and or for commercial gain to a system. So I think of it like this, okay? When I was younger, and I'm older than you, Jesse, when I was younger, Lake Erie was very badly polluted. I, you know, think Lake Erie is a great lake 
but I don't didn't like the pollution that went into Lake Erie. And it's not that the internet is evil or bad. It's that we need to be very uh, mindful that there's a lot of pollution going on that uh, going in there. And Canadians are, you know, from our polling, quite mindful of that. 83% of them feel there's a lot of bogus information that they uh, encounter online. Their trust levels and you know trust is num- you know there's numbers in many places all over on trust. But it was interesting in the same kind of poll which we conducted, their trust of news that comes from traditional sources versus the trust that they encounter online was 30 to 40 points differential yeah. between the two among all age groups, mm-hmm. among all age groups. So I think I think that's important. And we, I think we should be very mindful of that. 39 times seems to me just about the right number. Well, let me get specific about our distinctions here and definitions. And I'll use, you know, I think that when we talk about fake news and when you talk about it in the report, we are talking about the same thing. You, and you make specific reference to fake news as defined by BuzzFeed's journalism, Craig Silverman, in doing research into these Macedonian content farms where they were just fabricating stories like that the pop, the pope endorsed trump and putting it out there to get clicks on facebook which did not discriminate uh, against fake news and allow those those dollars to funnel back to these people a commercialized fake news enterprises, how BuzzFeed defined fake news. And, and in fact, when they did research into whether people believe these headlines or not, research which you included in your report, that's how they were defining fake news. If we're going to broaden fake news to just like when somebody like Nick Kuvalis, a political hack, lies about something, then fake news is something that's been with us for a very long time. And we could just call it lies. And if, if you're going to argue that good journalism and nice an, is, is an antidote to lies, I'm with you 100% and we can't have enough of it. But if we're going to talk about fake news as this recent phenomenon of these sites that are just trying to make money off of clicks, I would suggest to you that it is not a problem we've had in Canada because we do not have enough clicks in Canada to make no, that very I, profitable. I, I agree. There's there's not a commercial incentive in Canada for the same reason why it's so difficult to be in the digital news business if you have an ad-supported model uh, in Canada because there's just not enough scale and not enough people. And the problem there's finally helps news. us, right? So, so, so it may inoculate us to some extent. So, you know, the political uh, uh, the political malevolent piece is, uh, is probably the much more relevant piece for Canada. And, you know, the importation of... Uh, uh, of news elsewhere, because obviously we care, you know, we have an interest in, in other countries. But no, I agree with you. There aren't enough clicks for Macedonians to really care big time about Canada. I'm glad we're on the same page of this. I, I felt that it was a, a strange fixation of the report when if I had to talk about what the real threats are to, you know, if we're solving for X and X is, are we going to have de- well, I, decent I don't know why journalism? you find a strange obsession in the report in a sense, because I think we agree that the problem is how does this distort people having, having you know, a reliable font of information, a reliable fountains of information in order to exercise their democratic choices whatever those democratic choices are. We tend to talk about this on a national basis, but, you know, there's local democratic choices, all kinds of ways that people, there's their rights and and, and what's happening there. That's about democracy too. And one of the things that people identify, the second most important thing they identify that they fear could be lost if the new system continues to decay would be understanding uh, threats to my rights or, you know, rights being impinged right after investigative journalism. So, I don't see that we're in a completely different place. I, I think that we're both probably obsessed with making sure that the system is clean enough, that there is, you know, strong debate. I mean, that's, you know, critical, diverse points of view, that's critical, but that complete fakery and lies. I'm reading one uh, here. Uh, Hillary Clinton suffers from strokes, high-functioning autism, syphilis, and a personality disorder. You know, well... I believe that that uh, has uh, no basis in fact. Right. 
Right. Again, an American example, but one that uh, definitely entered into our brains here. It, it, it's just, and this is also something that is in your report a few times, it's starting to lose meaning. I mean, fake news is being, Donald Trump uses that term. It's just being used so willy-nilly that it's sort of using it, losing its usefulness. My concern with the report is that it did seem to be preoccupied with this fake news question. And if I were to try to diagnose what is ailing the news and, and the strength and the vitality and the robustness of Canadian news reporting, I would be talking a lot more about media concentration and I would be talking a lot about the quality of the news product. So I wonder if we talk about both of those things. It seems like concentration comes up a couple times, and this is something we talked about a lot in the past, about should we allow post-media to become this behemoth? Should we allow post-media to gobble up Sun newspapers? Don't worry, said Paul Godfrey. We're going to have distinct newsrooms, distinct newspapers. That lasted for months, and the newsrooms were consolidated, and now both the Sun papers and the post-media papers are based on the same original reporting, and both of those papers are less than they used to be. So the fears from those who felt that media concentration was a huge issue in Canada I think we're entirely justified. And if we're going to talk about policy solutions to media in Canada, the, the, the go-to policy solution for a long time has been some kind of antitrust. Should we be breaking up these companies? That has given a really short shrift. It's kind of shrugged off in this report. So I'm just going to read one quote, if I may, for a second. It's from the 1970, you've read it, Jesse, but it's from uh, uh, the 1970 Senate report onto mass media by Keith Davey, which was focused very much on the concentration of uh, ownership uh, issue that you raised. I keep it by my bedside and okay, read well, a passage to my you, kids every you night. You have a very interesting life, Jesse. I'm, the quote I'm going to lead you before, he's, he's talking at this point about does concentration of ownership matter? And he goes, of course it matters. And then he writes... In a land of bubblegum forests and lollipop trees, every man would have his own newspaper or broadcasting station, devoted exclusively to programming that man's opinions and perceptions. My goodness, he's predicting the internet in many ways, isn't he? Uh, in a sarcastic vein. And I guess that's one of my two issues of why I'm not as um, obsessed to use your word or fixated to use your word from before on the media concentration ownership of some other people. I think that I think that there's a real issue there. I think it's a genuine issue. I think in some ways it's fighting the last war. Whether we have breaking up of, of, uh, of newspaper chains and the newspapers underneath them still fail because the economic model is bad and people are still not well served because both there's not, you know, a strong enough economic model to support journalism and there's a lot of this, you know, cheap pollution uh, in the system. I don't think that's the primary threat that we're talking about anymore. Certainly a diversity of voices is greater than we've ever had before. That's the uh, the gift of the uh, of, of the internet. You couldn't have existed in a pre-digital world, uh, you know, probably the capital, maybe you could have. I barely you, did. You, yeah, you, you, ha you have some capital at your disposal, but, you know, but it's hard to uh, make ends meet on an operational basis. And for people, it would have been hard for them to, you know, acquire the capital to, uh, you know, to begin their operations. Fortunately, we live in a much better world than that today. The threat is that the system, no matter what model you have, it's it's difficult, increasingly difficult, to amass enough resources to to employ journalists and to have specialization, to have two-year investigations and and pieces uh, of this sort. So that's the problem, the concentration of ownership thing. I'm not saying there is not an issue there. I'm just saying. It's not as prime an issue as it was, and there's other issues that I think have superseded, and let's really concentrate on the real dangers is that there's not enough journalists, no matter how we set up the system, unless 
we figure out a way to get more money into the system. The part of this that is gross to me and to a lot of people out there on just a fundamental level of fairness is that it almost feels like you're rewarding our news organizations for being terrible. There's no discussion of the quality of the product, really. Like the New York Times has doubled their subscriptions since the Trump campaign because people are like, holy shit, we need the, we need this. And, and who are you going to give the money to? You're going to give it to the New York Times or the Washington Post who are doing terrific work. You're going to give it to Mother Jones because of their investigative work. The case, Unless you're a Trump voter, of course. Well, and they're going to so give- ha- So half of America will. I, that, I agree. Right. And, and then uh, those people are also funding their sources. And uh, the, 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 the idea that people won't pay for news is being severely challenged, especially in response to the death of news. The more you see bad news flourishing and good news going down the tubes, people are saying, okay, if we want to protect civil society, I'm ready to get up my wallet. That is how New York Times is fighting the fight. That is how Washington Post is fighting the fight. Maybe it's how the Globe and Mail is fighting the fight with this 20-month investigation that you cited by Robin Doolittle. That's the kind of thing that makes people want to subscribe to the Globe and Mail. I think it could be argued that post-media, in cramming these endorsements uh, down the, the throats of their editors, in degrading their editorial product to a place where even Paul Godfrey has to uh, defend, well, it, it's not unacceptable, but it's not what it was. When people are finding less and less value in your product, you, and you respond by making your product worse, and firing the reporters who make that product, and giving yourself a huge bonus, and then there's a, a huge government bailout for you, that is gross to a lot of people. Okay, and so, it's not so, it's not so, dealt with in the report. So you're, I think it is dealt in the report, although I, I can understand why you think it isn't. And it's kind of like, you know, if this was arithmetic, you would have gone X plus Y plus Z equals something that's not what I think I said you lost uh, in, in the report. Well, you, you know, all, all of all of the, the points that you had leading up to there, I think, you know, are true. There's different, I'm going to just sort of, uh, without naming names, saying there's different qualities of, uh, of of news that's being done and journalism that's being done. Some organizations have cut back more than others. Some organizations have run their businesses better than others. So there's a chart in here that shows 10 news organizations and the declines of their revenues over five years. And you can see last of the 10 is post-media. And that's revenues we're talking about. That's before you have any of the considerations of post-media has more debt than anybody else. And I think what that shows you in reverse, at least you can certainly infer it, I think, reasonably from the data, is that if you give people fewer and fewer journalists and less and less news hole and less and less news hole that actually is dedicated to the locality in which people live, that they're going to put less into the newspaper and advertisers are going to put less into the newspaper too. Circulation will probably drop faster. Advertising will drop faster because it doesn't have that same connection to the community. So I think we do actually, first off, show that. Second point I'd make, which I think is very important to uh, to how you open the interview, is we're not looking at rewarding bad performers. That's why there's a fund and not tax credits. Tax credits are blind. And we do that, you know, in the report, it says this very explicitly. Tax credits treats everybody equally, whether they use the money well or don't use the money well. And we felt that having some discretion in terms of, okay, like the Knight Foundation does, like many other foundations do in the States, this is a foundation that would be 
arm's length, independent from government, and financed, as you said, by um, digital advertising that does not go to support journalism in any way. You know, there's a a much larger debate about the history of these arm's length granting bodies as they've played out in other cultural sectors in Canada and how they inevitably either become politicized or overtaken by the uh, basically the the legacy. You know, to have an innovation fund that invariably who sits on the juries of these funds and, and who do they give the money to? There's not a great history of this. I'd be interested in seeing the uh, the history of the Social Science Humanities Research Council, the National Science and Engineering Research Council, the Canada Council in that regard. I think that they've been, you know, quite independent uh, and... uh, you know, maybe we could spar over that. I don't actually have enough information to uh, to know of instances where they haven't done that. But I follow the stuff uh, for years, and I can't think of major incidents. The only incident I can really remember is the uh, Canada Council standing up to a conservative government many years ago when it didn't want uh, uh, backing for a certain painting that it found uh, um, offensive to a particular member of parliament. And so I'm not too sure that these aren't agencies that have credibility and integrity. Like I said, it's a larger the, the, <laughs> talk to young artists about the Canada Council and who gets most of that money and what and it, it, it goes to institutions. I mean, it does it goes to uh, established arts institutions over the upstart artist. There's another whole 18 right, episodes. We'll leave that one for another day. We'll leave that one for another day. I, I, I obviously have uh, a deep suspicion of like, I mean, like when I think about uh, the inevitability in my mind. I mean, over at the Toronto Star, they, they, they hired the digital guru, David Scott, and there was some hope that maybe they were finally desperate enough to listen to somebody who knows digital. But like in a matter of months, he was gone. I think he butted heads with John Hondrick too much and was out the door. I think about Post Media and their four planks digital initiative. Or I, I see uh, – so Hondrick at the Star, you know, Crawley at, at, at the Globe. Uh, I think about Paul Godfrey of all people at the Post Media. And I'm wondering, are these guys concerned about really facing the innovator's dilemma? really making the turn and saving these institutions, these important institutions for the next generation of journalism? Or are they more primarily concerned with just not being the guy who killed the whole thing? Because they've got like a 10-year window at most until they're out of the picture. And nothing they've done demonstrates to me that they're really serious about turning their companies around. And so just giving them a lot of money to me feels like the worst thing that could happen. But, you know, uh, we're talking well, well, in a speculative also, way. You know, so I, I'd, I'd say two, uh, two or three things. You know, one, there's a differentiated quality in management and in different companies and at different times. You know, certainly you want the young innovators to come up and be disruptive. That's how the world works well. And uh, and I think the report is uh, is very conscious of that. Um, those organizations and institutions also are still the organizations that employ the most journalists in Canada. You know, if you took uh, my alma mater, the Globe and Mail, I think that there's, you know, good journalism going on right now at the Globe and Mail. I think there's good journalism going on at La Presse. I, th- I think La Presse has, you know, managed to find a business model which won't persist forever because everything's constantly changing, but where they actually haven't really cut their newsroom. Their newsroom is almost the same size. But that's it. La Presse, they, they, they somehow made this this tablet thing work, it seems, but they couldn't have done it if they didn't stop delivering paper newspapers. They forced people into the new model. That's yeah, the yeah, innovator's we're, we're, dilemma. We're, we're, the, which the was a very smart, 
you know, very smart, savvy. Thing yeah, to afford. the star didn't have and, the guts, and helped, right? And helped somewhat by the, you know, market that they're in, which is a bit of a protected market, being, uh, being a sure. French language market. But nonetheless, you know, very smart management. But that kind so, of bold so, move is what I'm talking about. That's the innovator's dilemma. And the, and the legacy dilemma is like, are you willing to cut off your biggest revenue source because you know it's doomed and, and enter this scary new territory? And I don't think these guys are willing. And it's a much easier dilemma to have theoretically than real, because if you're sitting on a news organization, which still today is going to have like 80% of its revenue or 75% of its revenue coming from non-digital sources and 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 you know a unit of advertising's worth so much more in print than it is you got to pick the right moment to make that uh, uh, to make that decision you've got to prepare an organization to be digital and be legacy at the same time and switch over sometime. It might have been easier for La Presse to do. It's more difficult for everybody. I don't think everybody's like stupid or an idiot. I think it's just very difficult time to to manage. So you ask about, you know, why I don't point out this or that in terms of individual companies. I think that it's appropriate for you to ask those questions and it's appropriate for you as a media analyst and someone who does a media show to say, why is this company do this and that company doesn't do that? But I think my job was really to look at how is democracy being well or ill served by the trends that are occurring in journalism, and I particularly two trends, the economics of journalism and the entry of uh, fake news into the ecosystem? Yeah, I'm, I'm just butting up against it seems like you position the new upstarts as sort of unwilling or unable to, to, to really pick up the slack uh, that has been lost through all the all the bloodshed. And so it, it seems like there's a sense of inevitability in the report that the only people to handle this job are the people who've already handled this job. So we got to, whether they're good or bad, we got to So gotta when keep, we met the first going. time, and you apologized me, apologized to me at the beginning, I appreciate this, and I know next time you'll apologize for what you're saying now, um, you know, you felt that that was the way it was going to be. And I think maybe, you know, maybe you're seeing it that way. I feel that it is uh, a report that recognizes that the new entrants are going to bring new energy and zest to uh, uh, to the system. Uh, the verticalization that you, for instance, have in terms of specialties is, you know, is a positive. The low barriers to entry is a positive. But the traditional media, you don't want them. First of all, I'd like them to make it. I think you want them to make it. If they're not going to make it, I don't want that to happen precipitously so that the journalistic ecosystem gets uh, gets harmed and democracy gets harmed in the meantime. And right now we have not just that things are getting worse, but things are getting worse faster. That might be what's necessary. But, you know, you want to bring up upst zesty upstarts like me and other digital news companies. And for that matter, legacy news companies, we can't do our jobs without the fair dealing exception for news reporting. We rely on it every day. The fair dealing exception to copyright, that means that if I want to report on something and it means uh, that I can't report on somebody somebody's story without including a photograph from that story or some reference to it or a passage from it, I don't have to go through some legal process of paying for a license, which they, they have the discretion to deny to me. No, I can build on somebody else's work or in the case of media criticism, I need to cite the work and include passages from the work and photos from the work because I'm discussing their work. Your report recommends revisiting opening up copyright to essentially uh, f come up with some system. How do you put it? We recommend that this review tighten usage of copyright news materials in favor of creators without unduly stifling the social power of sharing on the internet. How do you do that? Look, I mean, you know, fair dealing, as as, as you know, and uh, and uh, I hope uh, you know, perhaps some of your listeners know, but it's a, it's a kind of very complex area of of law, is an exception to the copyright rule, 
And and we're not saying that fair dealing should be gone. There is a mandatory statutory review of uh, of the provisions of the Act in 2017. What we're saying is, when that statutory review occurs, as it has been scheduled to occur in the you know Act itself, that the balance should be looked at, and we think it should be looked at in the uh, in in favor of the creator. Now, that's not to say the things that you said, you know are absolutely necessary and right. I mean, you couldn't do a movie review. You couldn't have a trailer. You couldn't, you know, have that, you know, selected words out of uh, out of review that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that one does uh, uh, or book passages or anything. So we're not saying that, Jesse. What we're saying is that the creator needs to have some time to also be able to make money. So I'm saying I can't take your podcast and, you know, fair deal it, you know, I'm just going to put it up on the CBC site now and I'm going to monetize it on the CBC site. I don't well, have that problem. Well, that okay, well, you may not have that problem, but other people who are trying to make a living would have that problem if people take immediately... And and it's a world where it used to be, you know, rip and read radio, you know, at least wait it's four hours or three hours because of the nature of, of the delivery system before they uh, they did that. And then they cited other other places to just take it five minutes after it's posted and make it your own and deny the people who've invested in the journalism to create it the ability to uh, to uh, earn monetary returns doesn't seem to me uh, right. And so the balance needs to be shifted. I'm not talking anything black and white. I'm talking the shades of gray. I, I just don't know what these examples are. You only use one in the report, and, and it's the one you use really struck me because you used the example of during the, uh, the Moncton shooting when one of the Irving family newspapers had the photo of the shooter behind their hard news wall. Okay, they took a ton of heat, and I think rightfully so, that they made you go through this portal of like signing up through a subscription and getting a credit card in there before you could find out if a killer was on your street. You want to talk about the civic function of journalism? There's a time to get that information out there and not use it to drive subscriptions. And you use that as your example. While the photo ended up uh, costing them subscriptions as soon as other news organizations started to rip it and use it. I mean, that was information that should be out there, that other people should be repeating. There was a, an immediate danger issue of getting as much information about that shooting. That shouldn't be behind a proprietary paywall. We need an exception to copyright in that instance. So, look, we're going back to almost like a, um, you know, Napster-era music industry concern about, first of all, there's no magic beans that's going to make it possible for the news industry to get paid every time somebody rips or aggregates a story. And second of all, the fear that it's going to be the Huffington Post and the aggregators that are really doing the damage, I think, has been almost like completely disproven. That's not the threat. That is, uh, or it, it's Facebook and Google and, and the destruction. Well, let's, let's talk about the threat then. The, yeah, the, that's not the threat. The threat is that the business model doesn't work anymore. And you can't, it's not Facebook and Google's fault that, that they, they discovered a better way to sell advertising. And that's stolen the advertising market. from. So newspapers need to appeal directly to people and prove their worth and value and say, look, are you willing to pay for news? It, it's almost like we've tried nothing and we have no other ideas. So we need money from the government. So, so well, just so we can share with, uh, with people who haven't had an opportunity to read the report that, you know, of, uh, of a survey that, uh, well, it wasn't a survey because it was actual data, uh, 4.7 billion ad impressions. So you, that 82.4% of those were uh, were served up by Facebook and Google, and 11.5% were served up by Canadian publishers and broadcasters. Um, so 
I think that's a problem. I don't fault Facebook and Google. I think the report says, you know, uh, you know, they have been excellent, innovative companies. They've created products and services that the market likes. Um, you know, I, I I wouldn't shut them down. I use those products myself uh, every day. So what I'm suggesting in here is that from somewhere we need to move some money into the system to support our democracy at base. Probably it's not the best idea that that money come from the government to publishers because obviously this is not like any other industry. It's incumbent upon the media to uh, have a very tense and adversarial relationship with government. So where should it come from? And the least of all the evils seem to us that it should come from those people selling digital advertising who are not investing in journalism in Canada. We allow you to invest journalism in Canada. It's not based on your nationality. It's based on your willingness to invest in journalism in Canada. If you don't want to invest in journalism in Canada, then there's a small levy. We have a precedent for this that's existed for, I don't know how many years, for decades on cable companies who profit off of the uh, content that's created from other people and they pay a small levy that then goes into television and film production. It's the same kind of, uh, it's exactly the same kind of theory here. And why couldn't the money come from the news consumer? Why isn't that possibility considered? Well, the possibility is always considered. First of all, money does come from the news consumer. Money does come from advertising. We're talking about, you know, incremental revenue. And, you know, we've seen, as, as you can see, you know, the report shows, uh, you know, we have double-digit revenue losses year after year after year. And it's, you know, hitting a point of, uh, you know, where you're into bone. No, ads are done. So, so it, would be, it would be very nice if people would all buy subscriptions to news services. Uh, that would be very good. Or give to uh, campaigns uh, uh, like your own. That would be terrific. What we see from the data is that 9% of Canadians say that they do pay for uh, for a new service, so that's one in eleven. You've cited the New York Times and the Washington Post getting more because of uh, I think the apprehension of many uh, uh, people who are not Donald Trump voters about Donald Trump, so they're rallying around news organizations that are doing a very good job of holding the new president to account. That's terrific. We don't have the evidence that's happening. We do actually have a recommendation that would incentivize, if you will, people taking subscriptions by dropping the HST and GST off uh, off of subscriptions. And indeed, just as a first uh, level, because I know you you know uh, have the same view of this as I do. You know, there's a kind of perversity in the system where you know foreign-owned uh, uh, organizations have an advantage over Canadian organizations when it comes to uh, uh, to GST. So we say, first of all, get rid of that perversity. Yeah, that's a, that's a good tip. Uh, Number one. But also, let's perhaps uh, offer rebate on HST, GST, which some provinces have for newspapers, but let's do it for digital subscriptions. So I agree. I'd like to find a way, and I'm trying to incentivize a way there, but nothing is a complete answer. The the maddening thing to anybody who's coming at this as an entrepreneur is that you're not going to have data about whether or not Canadians are willing to pay for news until... The circumstances are there for people to really make that pitch to them. I would argue that it's not just about people being anti-Trump, that why they suddenly saw the surge in subscriptions to the Times. Because I think if you take writ large the number of people who are paying for various news services or from the right wing as well, it's because those organizations connected with people and demonstrated their value. They said, hey, we're not going to be here if you don't pay for us. 
We haven't seen that happen yet. There's two ways we could see that happen. Either the legacy players get their act together and bring a product to market where they actually make an appeal to people, say, hey, we're worth paying for and not paying for in some symbolic way where you sign up for a subscription to McLean's and it's still coming after you've canceled it four years later to your dentist office. No, we're actually going to charge you what it costs to do this news reporting. And if you don't pay for it, we're not going to have this. And, and we may need them to die. We, if they can't make that pitch successfully, the only way we'll know if people are willing to pay for that is if somebody else comes and makes it for them. But I can't sell news to a market that's already getting it for free. I'll leave aside the fact that in your in that analysis, you'd have to slay the CBC as well or else have it become a paid consumer model that it wouldn't be uh, widely available for people. Just leave that aside for a moment Let's. if we could, okay? According to the Reuters uh, uh, annual study, 9%, not just of Canadians, are paying for news, but pretty much in every English language speaking market in the world, about 8 or 9 or 10% are paying for news. Number tends to be higher in non-English language uh, uh, speaking markets, and I think that's because perhaps there's less choice uh, in those markets. I would say that um, the causality that you suggest that people are paying more right now for the New York Times and Washington Post because they're offering better product. Well, I hope that's true. But, you know, the tripwire, when it changed, was uh, right after the election of uh, of uh, of the current president. Yeah, but why did it go so, to the Post? Why did it go so, to the Times? They had scoops. No, no, it, no it went to... That's, it, that's how we get paid. We, get, we have scoops. Absolutely. We get paid more. It went to organizations that have journalistic abilities and muscle. Last night, I was at a, uh, a presentation uh, by Sue Craig and uh, David Farenthold, uh, investigative reporters with the New York Times and the Washington Post. They did some wonderful uh, work in the election campaign. And, uh, and you know, Sue was a former Globe and Mail reporter, so I know her very well, and we were talking a little bit on the side. And the New York Times, you know, devoted an awful lot of resources uh, to this election. The other fact is that nobody is supporting their newsroom by what people are paying for digital subscriptions or even digital advertising. We know that. Even the New York Times, the mighty New York Times, cannot pay for their newsroom yet out of that. So, but 10%, so, so, so what are we going to do? You, what are we going to do if the structure of the economics of this industry now are such that you won't be able to support uh, newsrooms like the New York Times and the Washington Post that you laud for the uh, their ability to do coverage? Well, unless you get Jeff Bezos to uh uh you know or you know billionaires who are willing in some ways uh you know to invest heavily. And in that's it. great too and that works sometimes. But your your data sounds right to me. I mean, out of our audience of uh, 30 now it's about 35,000 listeners, it's about 10% who pay for the product. If you can get 10% of the population to pay for a product, you're doing pretty good. Maybe you can't fund a newsroom of of your, but you don't have a classified section anymore. You don't have to print physical newspapers and you don't have to manage this massive distribution network and putting papers on people's doorsteps every morning. There's a lot of saved costs when you get rid of print. There's a lot of saved costs when you realize that, you know, maybe you don't need as much service journalism and lifestyle stuff. When you get down to the journalistic product, if one in 10 people are paying for it, there, there are models that could and, work. And, and, you know, having worked in that business for many years, I know that, you know, the newspaper industry, for instance, you know, probably 55 or 60% of your costs are in printing paper and delivery. You could get rid of 55% of your costs, but at the moment, more than 55% of your revenue comes from there. So it wouldn't be completely a rational thing to do, except in exceptional cases uh, like La Presse. If you got rid of uh, those costs, you're immediately going to have to lay off another, you know, if you have a 250 person newsroom, you're probably going to have to lay off 50, 75 more of your journalists to, uh, uh, to make it pay. I don't think that's, you know, and as I see, keep saying, I'm coming from this for how well is democracy served. I don't think that serves democracy well to have all these newspapers having to lay off 25 or 30% of their staff. 
I, I don't have all the answers and I don't know what the model or the newsroom of the future will be, but there, but 10%, there, there's money there to do news. You know what? I, I gotta, I'll let you get on with your day. I've a final question for you. It was from a certain vampiric aggregator, the Huffington Post, where Althea Raj reported there miraculously, sometimes they do it, did some original reporting. She's got a lot of sources deep within the liberal party, sometimes to a fault, but she had a scoop. And her scoop was that the liberal government is not going to do what you asked them to do, that they, they there is no way we're doing it. She quoted a senior liberal staffer uh, who did not want their name used. I don't know if this is an accurate report, but uh, I kind of trust Althea Raj in terms of her sources in the liberal party. Do you know? Are they throwing out this recommendation for the news well, bailout? Well, well, first off, I want to put that uh, that quote in context. And I don't know who gave the quote to, and I don't know, you know, how senior or not they were. Um, but but I, I, I and it was a little ambiguous, I must say, in the story. But it, the quote was about, uh, I believe, the next budget. Uh, so she was talking about the 2017 budget in the story, and uh, which will occur in March. And I'm not expecting anything in the 2017 budget based on a report that came out in January. There's still a House of Commons committee, Heritage Committee, to report. So I'm not expecting anything that's going to happen. It read differently I- imminently, than that. except I know it read differently. But then you know, then a little bit deeper down, it said that I'll I'll, I'll take it even on the, on the face value of uh, uh, of what you're saying. But uh, but I don't expect anything to be happening. And that was the context it looked like. Like to me in 2017, except perhaps maybe we'll see some movement on this HST GST issue, which also you know is uh, is you know tied up with Netflix as well. But you know maybe we'll see something there. But 30 countries have done it. It's about time that uh, uh, that Canada does as well. So my reading of the politics, which is I think uh, the bigger question that you're asking, is that there's a deep concern about the uh, lack of health of, uh, of the Canadian uh, media, an extremely deep concern about not importing into Canada or allowing Canada to, you know, be uh, follow behind as it tends to 12 months or 18 months behind the United States in terms of uh, uh, a fake news world. And there is a um, willingness to entertain solutions. I don't say, you know, this is a, a completely easy thing, but as you know, two of the nine sponsors of the report were government departments. Uh, they were the first sponsors of they asked us to uh, uh, to look at this. They asked us to look at this for a reason. Uh, I've talked to people in Ottawa about the report, and I see that there's uptake. I don't know that this will be easy. You know, there's more uptake on some recommendations than others, but I think that we will uh, see something. I, I don't think that I've um, uh, spent my time poorly over the last uh, six, eight months doing this. Not at all. I mean, you must have your own sources. You've, you've been uh, throughout all your jobs. You know people in that party. Party and government, yeah, and, uh, both, and uh, I think there's a great deal of concern and a um, I don't say an appetite to do something because I don't think anybody really has an appetite to do something. I think there's a willingness to address the issues uh, that you know may need to be addressed as they watch media news media's capacities um, deteriorate. So my answer is yes, Jesse. I think that there is a possibility that something will happen out of this report, but I wouldn't expect to see it in the next three months. Well, my fear when I read that thing in Huffington Post was that if they uh, reject this uh, $300 to $400 million news bailout fund, which a lot of people have been very critical of. I'd stop you. I wish you'd stop calling it a bailout fund, but uh, but that's okay. Very loaded word, but good. That uh, they throw the baby out with the bathwater and all the good stuff in there might get tossed too. But I don't know much about how policy works, and I guess they could pick and choose what they want to keep. 
Yeah, well, so, uh, some recommendations are clearly, uh, I think, easier for the government than others. And I think four or five or six of them are slam dunks. And I think the ones that you focused on, particularly in the report, because they're, you know, the core of the report in many ways, the reforms to Section 19 and the uh, and the fund itself are probably two of the more complicated ones, both in policy terms and political terms. Uh, but that, of course, is where something will be done. I don't think some of the ones that you're worried about being tossed out uh, uh, will necessarily go with the bathwater. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jesse. Hey, that's your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Go have a look if you have not recently. There are some news stories that you might find very interesting. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. On Tuesday, Commons is back. The first episode with the new hosts. Check it out. CanadaLand Commons if you're not subscribed yet, go subscribe now. The Imposter will be up on Wednesday, Shortcuts on Thursday. Last week, I announced the Canada Land Guide to Canada World Tour of Canada. This is a book tour, live stage performance thing I will be doing in May. Tickets are on sale for most cities. Check it out on our website. Russell Gregg is the producer of this show. He also handles syndication to campus and community radio stations across this country. If you like what we do, please support us. Thank you.